I'm Dan Baum, and you're listening to Redefine You. Join us as we continue to explore what happens when we're challenged to change our thoughts, beliefs, or even who we think we are. With the election just six days away, it seems like every hour, new poll results are released. During the last presidential election, we saw how polls can sometimes be misleading. What are the challenges with conducting a survey when so many of us are working remotely? What can we learn about our community or even ourselves through the process? Last month, we recorded a conversation with Dr. Dan Nataf, a professor in AACC's Department of History, Political Science, and Philosophy, and director of the Center for the Study of Local Issues. When we talked, Dan was fine-tuning his 50th local survey. Since then, that survey was released. You can find a link to the results on our show page. In this interview, he shared with us his thoughts on the survey process, the election, and the opportunity we have to redefine as a community. Today, we're talking with Professor Dan Nataf. Dan, good to speak with you and connect at a distance. Yeah, great to be with you. So how long have you been at the college and what do you primarily teach? I got there in 1995, so uh, it's uh, 25 years at this point. I am in the Department of Political Science, and so I teach uh, courses like Intro to American Government, International Relations, State and Local Government. I've just created a course called Introduction to Political Science. The other thing I have done over the years is uh, I've been director of the Center for the Study of Local Issues, um, you know, for many years once I, when I first got here, and uh, I still do the surveys uh, every semester. And so these are sur- surveys of Anne Arundel County citizens, residents, and we get their views on a whole variety of topics on a regular basis. Tell me more about how the center came about and how these surveys came about. Well, the center was uh, a product of a collaboration uh, within the uh, social science uh, division. That was what it was back then. And uh, people like uh, Steve Steele and Lou Amart and and some others uh, decided that they would start running a survey as their kind of signature product, along with uh, making themselves available as social scientists to uh, usually nonprofit and government entities that needed some, you know, survey work, focus group, anything of kind of a research project that a social scientist could do. And so that was around 1980. And so over the years, the survey, it's, it was probably the most well-known of all the things that uh, the center ever did. And uh, the way that worked was by trying to recruit students from other faculty to give those students a kind of an applied learning exposure, an experiential learning moment where they would be trained to go on the phone and call residents. They were given a list of people to call, and they would read uh, the questionnaire to uh, a willing respondent take down all their responses, uh, and then eventually that was converted into a database, which was then analyzed. Results would then be published as a press release, uh, which was sent out to, you know, all the mass media and a host of other organizations and groups in the county. And uh, also, there would be an opportunity to use uh, the results in classrooms. So, um, you know, we've done this for uh, every semester since I got there. So, uh, that is 
I guess we're looking at my 50th <laughs> survey this fall. Naturally, the fall is another problem because of COVID. And so there are no students to do the calling. And the way in which then it occurs is by uh, using a web panel that I put together. But even before COVID and switching to a web panel, it seems to me that surveys would be changing just by the nature that people don't answer their home phone necessarily. How was that already evolving? pre-COVID? This is a dilemma that the survey industry as a whole uh, has of trying to, there's the declining response rate problem, and there's the emergence of cell phone-only households. That's the problem. The response rates on cell phones are even lower than they are for landlines, because obviously people in, uh, who have cell phones can be anywhere. They could be out to dinner in a movie theater, absolutely anywhere when you call them. Mm -hmm. And thus, you know, they're not going to answer, right? They're just going to decline the call. So we got to call a lot more to get the sample size that we need from a cell phone prone population. Right. And what's the process you use to come up with the questions that you survey each semester? Every semester, it's a little bit of a challenge trying to figure out what are the big things to talk about. So I have a survey committee. Uh, basically, it's been an advisory board to the center, which meets before each survey. And um, I try to interact with them before we meet. Uh, but my goal is to try to get from them uh, suggestions about topics that they see as particularly pressing or important. And when we do meet, I present them a draft of the questionnaire. And in it, I kind of overload it with lots of questions. And we try to spend some time prioritizing and taking out things and so forth. It seems to me, too, you're describing that in some years, it's a challenge to come up with some of the topics. Uh, I don't mean to be crass, but right now, from a survey standpoint, it's a goldmine. Yeah. I mean, you could just take a broomstick and swing one direction, you're going to have, there's so many issues. And of course, it's an election year. So I would think you this time would have had the opposite problem, that there's so much to survey about. Yes, that is exactly right. Um, this time, there's a, an abundance of topics. So I basically brought it down to three or four. So in my mind, the presidential election seems important. So yes, that's in it. The race relations, police brutality, uh, that seems important, so that's in it. The uh, other side of it, of course, the economy and COVID are obviously still here and as big issues, so there's part of it that goes there. And then there were some county-specific issues that uh, are more closely tied to initiatives of the county executive, so that's like a fourth uh, segment. But yeah, um, when I met with my uh, group there, the survey was 11 pages long. And uh, when they're phone <laughs> surveys, I, I go for six pages. And so, uh, you know, yeah, we got just too much in there. Uh, it's just, what don't you want to know? I want to know it all, right? And so uh, the temptation is just to keep you know, adding and expanding and nuancing and doing, you know, more because you can always think of a reason. I, I should also mention that I have been trying to get my students to participate in the topic selection question, ref mm -hmm. not so much refinement, but just suggestions about questions, because obviously they have a different series of interests, right, sure. uh, than um, general public. It might be that they have 
like a question within the COVID general area or in terms of Black Lives Matter or something like that. And so there's a back and forth that can go on that way. And I try to engage them just because I, you know, it's important for them to understand that, particularly if they're going to be on the phone to people, that this is why these are questions that the public might know something about on the one hand, and it seems important for us as analysts and really as uh, leaders in the community to have feedback so we know the kind of landscape that we're dealing with in terms of attitudes and behaviors in the county. Yeah, I think they like it. I mean, they've makes them feel like they're contributing something, you know, that's worthwhile. No, I'm sure they are. That's terrific. It, you mentioned some of the challenges of the survey industry. Four years ago with the presidential election, pollsters really got it wrong. So what happened and what may might they have learned that they would be doing differently now? Hmm. Well, um, you know, they got sort of right and sort of wrong. So it just depends on at what level we cut in. Uh, on national polling, they were mostly pretty accurate. You know, they always knew that Hillary Clinton was going to come out ahead. I mean, that every poll virtually had predicted that, and she did, right? So she was like two and a half, three points ahead nationally in terms of um, the popular vote. And so, you know, hurrah, we got it right. Uh, the problem is that the uh, frequency and technical qualities of the polls that they were doing in swing states, that was the problem. So they weren't doing enough polling, and they did not catch the importance of education as a, basically as a weighting variable. And so the non-college educated males, but just generally everybody in the white non-college educated group uh, swung, you know, these were kind of Obama voters who swung to Trump. And they didn't catch that. And as a result, they underestimated Trump's vote in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, places like that. You know, and so that was the problem. So I think that this year they're doing a lot more polling in swing states and big organizations are putting their money into it. And they're much more sensitive to proper weighting. The thing that is striking about the polling for this year is the unchanging quality of uh, the kind of Biden six and a half to seven point lead that has been just unchanging. It just doesn't vary. Well, let me pick up on, you, you mentioned the swing states. So right after the 2016 election, you made a presentation on campus about how Trump won the deciding states, the voters, as you just referenced. What do you see this time, the strategy or paths that these two candidates are taking to try to win? The biggest challenge uh, for an incumbent is to have things not go right in the year leading up to the election. And then the opponent says, don't think too much about me, but think about this entire process as a referendum on the incumbent. And so Trump's problem is that the economy faltered and this whole pandemic and the pandemic response, you know, it's not looking good. And, uh, you know, whether you can, you know, the blame the administration for a failed rollout or you can blame federalism for, you know, defying any sense of centralized leadership, who knows? Uh, but the president takes credit when times are good and the president is blamed when times are bad, right? You go both ways. And so he is running on a record. And his theory is that uh, he can 
argue that the economy was great pre-COVID, and so um, give me four more years and I'll bring back the strong economy, just kind of ignore the moment right now. That's his pitch. And then he tries to also argue that Biden is a person that is, you know, either feeble and old, although I'm not sure that really the contrast between him and Biden is that great on that. But then he plays out that Biden is under great pressure to do things that the Bernie Sanders sort of wing of the Democratic Party would have him do. And so he's going to bring socialism to America and kind of uses that as a kind of word that's meant to evoke communism and Soviets and Cold War and God knows what else. And then on the other hand, he's doing a kind of Nixon law and order thing and uh, trying to argue that the main thing you should remember about um, Black Lives Matter protests is that they're not protests, but they are riots. And so that uh, the key thing to focus on is property destruction, uh, mayhem in the streets, uh, you know, uh, fights. And so he becomes then the law and order guy that's meant to use, you know, the heavier hand of policing entities to try to restore order. You know, it's a little tough when the problem is the police. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's a challenge. And so you're trying to appeal to people who are insecure about, um, you know, chaos on the streets without really addressing the tiger in the cage, which is the behavior of the police that has led to the protest. Well, it's interesting what you're saying, the, the referendum on the incumbent, mm-hmm. but in some ways... Clinton's strategy was similar in that she was essentially attacking his character. And ultimately, that didn't work in terms of winning the actual election. Is Biden being clear enough in what he represents as opposed to just saying it's a referendum on on Trump? Biden has been very parsimonious on policy. And uh, it's pretty obvious why that is. To get John Kasich and Bernie Sanders at the convention both saying Biden's our guy, that is not a policy agenda. That is just a, I'm not Trump, and so it's referendum on Trump. Trump wants to make it kind of a choice, and maybe you know he'll be more successful over time doing that. But Biden has a really difficult task of keeping this very large umbrella together and not getting buried in details about um, you know the public option versus Medicare for all, whether he endorses the Green New Deal, what it actually means, what is you know his carbon neutral timeline is. I mean, you know, these are kind of mind-boggling topics that polarize. Mm-hmm. And Trump, he sort of avoids policy as a general rule. You know, a lot of it is inconsequential. If you say, well, what was your China policy tariffs? Where has it gotten you? Well, not much. You know, how much of the wall have you actually built? Well, a few miles. But he was able to reduce immigration quite a bit. And so that, I think, appeals to, you know, the voters who would have been all excited about the wall to begin with. So there's some promises kept argument that's in there. Of course, he's losing some recent sort of successes in foreign policy vis-a-vis Israel. And, you know, maybe some people care about that. I'm not sure how many. Of course, it's happening all at the federal level. But as you've said, you focus a lot on local issues. Are there other than that big election? Are there other state or local level issues or elections that we should be watching? 
you know, elections are off presidential years, right, for the state and local. Mm -hmm. And so there's not anything specific like that happening right now as such. And so, you know, Stuart Pittman's in the middle of his term, Hogan's in the middle of his second term. I think one of the tensions that you do see between the county exec and the governor has been about the pace of reopening, the scale and scope and pace of reopening. And again, the governor seems to fixate on positivity numbers and saying, you know, okay, tests show that the positives are down. And so let's move forward, you know, allow movie theaters to open up, allow higher densities in indoor restaurants and so forth. County execs have been in urban areas, right? Or, you know, kind of suburban areas like Anne Arundel, but just in general around the Beltway and to a lesser extent around Baltimore have been reluctant to open up as fast as Hogan would want. Mm-hmm. And uh, same story with schools. And I think that that's a significant tension because it's really pitting two different perceptions of where we are in terms of COVID recovery. And it's easy to say, open it up because you seem like, you know, you're invigorating the economy, you're getting people back to work, they're able to earn an income. Hey, their kids are no longer in the house needing supervision. There are so many pluses to opening up. But uh, a resurgence of COVID is not one of them. And so I think there's a lot of discretion. You know, it's like different teams are advising and giving their own perceptions. Hogan's got a team around him, Mm -hmm. but then so does Pittman. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's one of the tensions that I've been perceiving and it's something to certainly follow. Well, of course, you're right in the thick of that with your survey. So where are you in the process for the fall and when do you complete the survey and have the results? We met with my advisory group about a week and a half ago, and uh, I have sort of put it aside. I'm going to work on it this weekend and hopefully, you know, get something more or less final out. My goal is to have it in the field October 9th. It'll stay on the field for a week because, again, it's all online. So it gets sent out using SurveyMonkey. They've got the entire list of all the recipients' email. And it just goes out that way. Ticklers, uh, reminders uh, go out uh, a couple times during the process. Um, You know, again, the logistics of it are so much simpler than having to organize an on-campus calling process. But the samples are different. This is one of the things that I've seen over the years is that when you call, you get a more diverse group, uh, racially diverse, socioeconomically, educationally, in every way. Uh, the people who seem to opt into web panels are disproportionately rich, educated, and white. And so we do not get uh, what we had been getting in terms of poorer people, people of color, and the like. And so this causes uh, you know, some challenges because you're seeking a representative sample. And if you're getting people self-selecting out of the pool of those to whom you're communicating, then how reliable is the result? Right. Well, you've been doing it for quite some time. So did you say this was your 50th survey? I think it is. Yeah. So that's a, that's a milestone. So congratulations. It is. Thank you. What, what do you feel you have learned or gained most from your years of surveying the community? I guess an appreciation for what's static and what changes. A lot of the time, I just say, I'm curious about something, and I say, let's see what's going on with the public. They think the way I do. And then, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, or at least I have numbers now to say, here's uh, 
you know, 62% who seem to think that climate change is a big deal. Well, how would I know any of that having not surveyed? So for me, it's kind of a constant exploration, almost a revelation that occurs when I um, get the results. Because, you know, as you keep doing them, you some of them you're kind of got in the bag. You, you kind of say, okay, I think I know about this topic or, or this set of behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so when you get to a new one, you're kind of back on the age of discovery. You're trying to say, what's going on in this thing? Well, I like this view of static versus what changes that that's really the long view. So from that lens, from the lens of a political scientist, what do you see static and what's changing? I'll put it in the context of the theme of our podcast of redefine. How might we be redefining ourselves at this point in time? Or perhaps do we have the opportunity to redefine ourselves at this point in time? Well, most of the redefinition that's been occurring over the years has been, I think, a generally unhealthy one. And that is that uh, the American public, and even right down to Anne Arundel County, has been increasingly viewing virtually everything through partisan lens. And so we have become more polarized, more suspicious of the motives of others, elected officials, and not in your party. And I think it has coarsened uh, public discourse and the general conviviality of life. And this was certainly greatly accelerated during the election of Trump and during his period in office, um, you know, right down to the entire Supreme Court replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg problem. I mean, it is almost impossible to find a way of people meeting in the middle. At local government, you always hope that wouldn't be the case because, you know, potholes and, uh, you know, running local government efficiency seems like something that is more nuts and boltsy and not high level ideological. But, um, you know, uh, how the police is run, defunding it or reorganizing it or changing its functions, going through a different reconceptualization of what training means, all this, it trickles down from the top. I mean, when Anne Arundel is not an island isolated from uh, general trends. And so it remains to be seen whether uh, there's any way to putting Humpty Dumpty back together into, you know, a time when justices would get 97 votes in the Senate or in the equivalent as it trickles down right to our level. But uh, I'm always optimistic, but I'm also realistic. And so, you know, I hope for the best, but uh, I expect anything. (laughs) Well, so much happens at the local level where the work really gets done, or some people like to say all politics is local. So uh, hopefully that's where the solutions can be, and there'll be less partisanship or polarizing, because as you said, we got to be able to fix potholes and such. So That's so true. Well, Dan, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you for your insights, and I look forward to the fall survey results. I do too. All right, Dan. Well, it's good to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Take care and be well. Yep. See ya. During an election, we find ourselves at a crossroads, a chance to decide between maintaining our current direction or turning onto another path. Our country is so divided, no matter which path we choose, there'll be those who are disappointed or distraught. Through his years conducting the local survey, Dana Taft said he had gained an appreciation for what is static and what is changing. Wouldn't it be nice if what was static was our shared values 
and what changed was our divisiveness. In today's climate, that feels like such a long shot, but it's not impossible. The lessons we've learned through this podcast can help. If we nurture curiosity and ask powerful questions, we can create conversations that move us forward. A shift toward empathy and gratitude can liberate us from restrictions placed there by others or our own way of thinking. Change is a choice. Many have strong hopes for the election. No matter which direction our country chooses, let's make a bipartisan pact to approach one another with compassion. The potholes of discord can be fixed. Redefine You is a production of Anne Arundel Community College. Our executive producer is Allison Baumbush. Our producer is Jeremiah Pravat, and our writer, Amy Carr Willard. Others who help with this podcast include Amanda Behrens, Angie Hamlet, Ben Pierce, and Alicia Renahan. Special thanks to Dr. Dan Nataf. Find show notes, how to subscribe, and other extras on our website, aacc.edu slash podcast. I'm your host and creator of this podcast, Dan Baum. Thanks for listening.